Before we begin, just want to, I think everybody was able to get one hopefully on your way in, but there were some handouts. Um, if you did not get a copy, there may be a few extras back. Brian has some. So anybody need a copy of the handout tonight? Give you something to do. Fill in some blanks. A couple with more in there too. Alright, we are continuing our study in the book of Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. And tonight we'll be looking in chapter one, still in verses five through twelve. So Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five to twelve. Before we dive into our new text, let me just do a quick review. So what we looked at last week in the introduction, then we'll dive into these new verses. Paul is the author of this book, and it's a letter to this church in Thessalonica, and he wrote it on behalf of himself, as well as Silas and Timothy, and he wrote it really for three reasons. He wanted to encourage the church, he wanted to instruct them about Christ's second coming, and then he's going to warn them against brothers in their midst who were becoming idle. And he began the letter by reminding them, this church, of those who labored on their behalf to plant the church and to shepherd the church, even if it was for a very short period of time. That's why Paul, Silas, and Timothy were all mentioned at the beginning of this letter. He reminded them of their identity as a true church, not because of programs or size or who their pastor was, but because they were in God their Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went on in verse 2 to remind them that because they are in God and their Father, God their Father and in Jesus Christ, that they are recipients of God's continued grace and peace because of their standing. And then this grace and peace was manifested in their lives because their faith was growing in the midst of persecution as well as their love for one another. And so because God was doing this work in them, growing their faith and growing their love in the midst of this persecution, he was constrained to give thanks to God for what God was doing in their lives. So a vertical thanksgiving, but also one that was horizontal. And you see that in verse 4. We ourselves boast about you, boast about this church, amongst other churches of God. Again, why? For their steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that they were enduring. So that was the introduction that we looked at last week. And so that brings us to verses 5 to 12 this evening. Quick overview of these before we dive into the details. In these verses, Paul begins re-instructing them about Christ's return. And I say re-instructing because it was a topic that he hit in his first letter to this church in 1 Thessalonians. So he is beginning to re-instruct them about Christ's second coming. And he's doing it under the heading of the evidence of God's righteous judgment. So he's he's going to answer the question that they may be asking. How can they see that God is just and holy while undergoing such intense affliction at the hands of God's enemies? Where is the justice? 
And I think we could ask ourselves, would we have any problems seeing God as a righteous judge in our flesh with our frail eyes if we were in their situation? And probably in a moment of transparency, each one of us have probably had moments where we've questioned God's justice. And is he truly a righteous judge? And even in far less intense situations of persecution or suffering or trial than this church. So I think we can understand why Paul is needing to bring these truths in front of this dear church. So tonight, we'll see in verses 1 to 12 that God's righteous judgment is on display. It is evident. And it's evident in two ways. It's evident through the salvation. And we'll think of that as all-encompassing justification, sanctification, future glorification, the salvation of his saints. We also see it in his wrath on unbelievers, those who have rejected the gospel, those who do not know God. Let me read then these verses before we dive in. Second Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verses 5 to 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. Thankful that you have given it as the means through which you sanctify us. We thank you there's a way in which you have made yourself known, your, your will known to us. We pray, Father, that tonight we would um, truly see what your Holy Spirit intended uh, to inspire, that we would look at this word and come to it with humility, asking you to open our eyes to see wondrous things out of your law. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul begins right away in this passage, verses 5 to 12, with a bit of a thesis statement, something that he will state and then continue to unpack over the next few verses. And this statement is this, in verse 5 in the beginning, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And so we begin asking, 
Okay, what is the evidence of this righteous judgment of God? And in the original language, verse 5, in our English translation, it begins a new sentence. It doesn't in the original language. As Paul often does in many of his letters, as many of his writings, he writes really long sentences with loads of content in them. Then we're left with a translation, or if you're able to look at the original, to try to systematize it and, and put it together. And so, because the original doesn't start a new sentence, we're, we're left with looking at this statement, this is the evidence, and saying, well, it may point back to the faithfulness and the steadfastness of this church in the face of persecution. Maybe even the persecution is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Or it could point forward to what Paul's about to unpack about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to create a false dichotomy. It could be both. Not necessarily an either or. And as we unpack these verses, I think, I trust, we'll come away with the idea that it actually is both. The evidence of God's righteous judgment is seen in the perseverance and preservation of his children in the midst of suffering. But we'll also see that the righteous judgment of God is seen in the repayment of this affliction upon those who persecute his children. And that final justice and judgment will result in relief and rest, finally, for his children. So let's begin to unpack these verses in verse 5. Verse 5 begins, um, after the thesis statements, it begins with with a phrase that you may have run across, or at least a similar phrase that you may have run across in your reading, particularly in the New Testament. This idea of being considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul states that their suffering at this time is for the kingdom of God. Or another way of saying it, it's a result of them being a part of the kingdom of God and in the family of God. But this phrase may pique a couple questions in your mind. Like, Okay, if I need to be worthy of the kingdom of God, do I somehow have to earn my way into God's kingdom? Do I have to do something myself before God sees me as worthy to be part of his kingdom? And if our answer to that question or those questions are yes, we strayed into a works-based salvation that's antithetical to the biblical gospel. Because it's by grace we're saved through faith, so that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any of us have any reason to boast. And there would be room for man-centered boasting if we somehow made it into the kingdom of God because we performed in a certain way, apart from God's grace. But rather, I hope to, as we start on this phrase, to see that it falls within the stream of other teaching from the scriptures about being worthy of the kingdom of God. And that teaching perfectly coexists with the gospel of grace. You don't need to turn to any of these passages, but just listen to some of these other phrases that are similar to this that we find in the scriptures. Jesus, in teaching, would say things like this, whoever loves your father and mother 
son and daughter is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. In Matthew 22, he's giving a parable of a wedding feast. And he states that those who are invited are not worthy of the feast. And the feast is clearly representing the kingdom of God. Paul, the author of this letter, many other letters, says things like, walk worthy of your calling, walk worthy of the gospel. In in some of the other gospels, you have things like, bear fruit that's worthy of repentance. And so we take all of those things and all those phrases, and we have to come under the scriptures and agree with the scriptures on this. Worthiness is necessary in order to be a part of the kingdom and to walk as a faithful Christian. Worthiness is necessary. Back to the parable that Christ said in Matthew 22. Those who were invited to the feast rejected the offer because they wanted to continue on their normal business, farming, other vocations. Others in this parable, actually, when the messengers came with the invitation, beat them to the point of death. And because of these actions, Jesus said that they were deemed unworthy of the feast. Because it's a story, the feast is representing, again, the kingdom of God. So they're unworthy of the kingdom of God and found no entrance into the kingdom. So, there are people worthy of the kingdom who have acceptance from God and those who are unworthy of the kingdom who face divine wrath. So the question isn't, is worthiness needed? The question is, how is one worthy of the kingdom? And in each of the places where Scripture uses this worthiness language, it is not teaching us that we somehow earn, deserve, or merit the kingdom of God on our own doing. So it does not affirm that. It does affirm that being worthy of the kingdom means that we love and treasure Christ above vocations above earthly relationships, above temporal comfort or ease, the things that are promised by walking lockstep with the world. Our being considered worthy of the kingdom of God means this. It means that we embrace the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ, as supremely worthy above all else. So our worthiness is based on embracing Christ and denouncing the kingdom of the world. And then again, it says, okay, so how are we able to do that? How do we have the capacity to love and treasure Jesus above everything that this world offers? And the answer is by God's grace. We don't earn it. We don't do it alone. 2 Corinthians 4 gives credence to the fact that the God of the world, Satan himself, has blinded our eyes from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Jesus who is the image of God. That's who we were. If we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in his work alone and repented of our sins, that's who we were before that. Our eyes were blind. We could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We couldn't see Jesus, the image of God. 
We're blinded because we treasured our own pursuits. But by God's grace alone, he has shown in our hearts, the end of that passage, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So being counted worthy of the kingdom of God, meaning that we treasure Christ above all else, this kingdom for which we're suffering has nothing to do with our own merit. But we're counted worthy of the kingdom because by His grace, God's grace, He's given us spiritual eyes to see and know Christ. And as the gospel hymn states, in the light of His glory and grace, then the things of this earth grow strangely dim. So again, We must be worthy of the kingdom. We are to walk worthy of the Lord. We must walk worthy of our calling. We must be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. But we have to realize that only comes through the grace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's introductory greeting is so important. The establishment of the gospel is so important for us to then read some of the implications of the gospel. Some of the commands that Paul gives us following his explanation of the gospel. So being a part of the kingdom brings with it suffering. As we've been learning in Romans 8, we've been united to our Savior Jesus Christ. We share in his sufferings in the same way that we share in his life and his death and his resurrection. But our suffering is part of his making us like Jesus, which is a gift of grace. And as we'll read, this suffering will be vindicated. And we'll see that now moving on in verses 6 and 7. We see God's judgment and evidence of God's judgment through affliction. Paul points these believers to the final judgment of God that will be upon those who are persecuting them. Again, in verses 6 and 7. This is part of God's holy and righteous judgment. In His perfect justice... God has pardoned us from the penalty of sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17, a letter that most scholars would place after this letter. So later on in Paul's writing, when he was penning the book of Romans, he'll write in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that the gospel reveals his righteousness. Why is that? Well, because the holiness of God demanded a perfect sacrifice for sin. He could not overlook sin. So he revealed his righteousness by placing his wrath and the sins of his people upon Jesus Christ. So that's one way his righteousness is revealed. It's in the gospel. But his holiness... His righteousness also demands a punishment for the sins of those who have rejected the gospel. To use the language we used before, to those whose eyes are blinded to the glory of God. And this will ultimately and finally come, this judgment, at the second coming of Christ. And this final judgment means eternal destruction for those outside of the kingdom of God. But for those who are in the kingdom of God, it also means an entering into final rest and relief. And when does this happen? Moving forward, it happens 
when the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 7 is revealed from heaven. Now, was Jesus already revealed from heaven in one sense? Yes, in the incarnation, in the life of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he had a little bit of a different mission from the Father. He came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as a servant. He was veiled in flesh. As we read in Philippians, Jesus thought equality with God was not something to be grasped or tightly held on to. But he willingly came as one with no form, no majesty, that would cause anyone to physically recognize him as God when he walked the earth. But as we read in the second coming, no one is going to miss who Jesus is when he comes again. Why? Well, he's going to come with his mighty angels. He's going to come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on a specific group of people. Now, hopefully we're again going to ask the question of the text. Okay, so, so who are the ones who are under the wrath of Christ when he comes? Again, we're looking at the evidence of God's righteous judgment in the final salvation of his people and the rest and relief that they'll have, the justice that he will perform on behalf of his people. But now we're also seeing the righteous judgment and evidence of his judgment and wrath upon those who are persecuting his people and rejecting the gospel. So, Jesus will afflict those who afflicted his people. We've already seen that. Now, there's two other descriptions of the objects of God's or Christ's vengeance in verse 8. Those who do not know God, that's one descriptor, and the other is those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase, those who do not know God, is actually a phrase that these Thessalonian believers would already be familiar with. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to. Just back a page, maybe two, for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, says this. This is the will of God. Again, he's writing to the same church. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. Listen here. Like the Gentiles do who do not know God. So, He's describing here Gentiles, and again, this is not um, trying to pick on a nationality. He's just using that term as those who are outside of the family of God, outside the kingdom. And so these Gentiles are those whose lifestyle is completely contrary to God's stated will in his word. Which again, back in verse 3 of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, the will of God for his people is sanctification being made like Christ, abstaining from sexual immorality. So those who aren't being sanctified, those who are not abstaining from these sins, are those who don't know God. They lack a true knowledge of God. To use other biblical language, 
Those who will suffer the righteous judgment of God have not placed their faith in God. Their trust in Him. Why? Because as we read in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And those who do not know God are not pleasing Him because they're living in light of their own passions and their own lusts, not accordance with God and His stated will. Now this, this knowledge, this lack of knowledge, is not, it's, it's not merely a lack of assent to God as some kind of divine being. He's not even saying they're atheists necessarily, disbelief in any kind of higher power. It's not just an ignorance about facts about God. Because even demons know about God. They even stated to Jesus as he walked the earth that we know who you are. You're the divine son of God. So again, those who do not know God are not just lacking some kind of head knowledge about God. But rather they're lacking a divinely given knowledge that again as we looked back at being worthy of the kingdom. A knowledge that embraces Christ for who he is and who he says he was. The son of God. And one worthy of being our authority. It's a lack of submission to live in a way that pleases God. And it's a kind of knowledge, the knowledge that they're lacking is the kind of knowledge that Jesus himself prayed for his people in John chapter 17, called the High Priestly Prayer. Let me read some of those verses. This is Christ, before he's taken away and before his crucifixion, he's praying to his Father in John 17, and he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Oh, righteous Father. And here, Jesus is, is setting these two, um, these, these two people apart as well. Listen. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. These are his disciples right then and there, but also those who he knows will place their faith in Christ as well. And then skipping down to the end of the prayer, he says this, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The world, those outside of the kingdom of God, do not truly know God, and so they are under the righteous judgment of God. The other descriptor he uses is those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus will afflict those who do not obey the gospel. So those who don't know God are not living in a manner pleasing to God because they do not have faith. It's impossible for them to please Him. They have a general revelation of God so that they don't have an excuse. We read that in Romans chapter 1. But there is another category of those, and somebody could be in both of these categories. They could be in just one. But there are others who flat out reject the gospel. Those who've had the gospel shared with them, clearly taught, and they still reject. I think one of the best ways for us to go and say, what is this gospel of Jesus? 
is go to the Gospels and see what Jesus Christ himself preached. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You know, again, don't have to turn there. You're welcome to. But it states that Jesus went around preaching the Gospel of God, and this is what he proclaimed. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And those who reject that message showcase incredible arrogance and pride that they've heard the proclamation of the gospel, a message to repent of their sins and trust in Christ for who he says he is and what he has done and to still not obey it. So faith and repentance, these are not mere suggestions, they are commands. And those who do not obey this gospel will be under the righteous judgment of God. Moving on to verse 9. Moving on to verse 9. <clears throat> What's the punishment? What will it look like? The punishment for not knowing God and not obeying the gospel is eternal destruction. It's eternal destruction. Now, this term doesn't necessarily mean an annihilation, extinction, but rather it's just a complete undoing of yourself. This is because eternal destruction is away from the presence of the Lord and it's from the glory of His might. That phrase, away from the presence of the Lord, literally means away from the face of God. The face of God is the source of all true light and true joy. The source of grace, the source of peace, the source of real, genuine satisfaction. And God's face at this time, even through common grace right now allows rain to fall and sun to shine on who? Both the just, those in the kingdom of God, and the unjust, those who are rejecting the gospel and don't know God. No matter your, 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 your um, relationship with Christ, there are many beautiful and good things in, still in this world that everyone has the opportunity to enjoy. But one day, all those who reject the gospel will be forever shut out from the countenance of God. He's the one from whom all blessings flow. So the ones who are saying, God, literally get your face out of my business, as we see in Romans chapter 1, those before Christ, he one day will, will say, okay, you'll have your way. I will turn my face against you. You will never again be a recipient of any blessing of mine. They will never see any glimpses of God's glory again. But in verse 10, it's the exact opposite for his saints. We see God's judgment through the relief he will grant to his people. God's righteous judgment, again, is displayed in his wrath against sin, as well as the salvation of his people. For those without faith or repentance, the second coming of Christ will be the last revelation of God's glory that they'll ever see. 
but for his own people. His second coming will result in him being glorified in his saints, and they in turn will marvel at his appearing. When it says that he's glorified in his saints, we need to understand it's not as if right now, because Christ has not come a second time, that he somehow miss, has a, like a missing piece of his glory. That when he comes again, we're, we're going to fulfill something in Christ that's lacking in him right now. He's not now, nor has he ever been or ever will be deficient of glory. But what's being said here is a reminder of why all mankind was created in the first place. His design for all humans was for us to be mirrors, reflectors of God's glory to all the nations. That's what Adam was created and commanded to do. Spread God's glory, exercise dominion over all creation so that my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But Adam failed. And when he failed, all of us failed with him. So Adam's failure did not diminish the glory of God in God himself. But what he did do was made the mirrors, us, mankind, the ones who were created to reflect God's glory, that mirror is now broken. It's now clouded. It's now unable in and of ourselves to do perfectly what we are created to do. But there is coming a day when God's saints will once again be restored to their original glory so that the glory of God will shine through them. Paul writes in other letters, We now see in a mirror dimly, but then, at Christ's second coming, we will see face to face. We start to have some knowledge of all of this in part, but one day we will fully know. We're being transformed from one glory to another. So there are glimpses of God and Jesus being glorified in us. But one day that process will be completed by the grace of God. We will see Christ in all of his glory and we'll see one another as we were created to be. There is untold grace and untold joy that still awaits God's people. This is another evidence of God's righteous judgment. And then Paul, as he does in every chapter of this book, closes in prayer for these dear saints. And this prayer ties up the whole passage that we've looked at today. Let's look at this closing prayer before we are dismissed. We see the fact that he prays and prays directly to God affirms something. And again, these are the little phrases that when we're, when we're reading in our, in our daily reading and our devotions, oftentimes we kind of just glance right over because we're so used to this terminology. But when he says, we're praying to our God, that our God would do something, he sets... His expectations, he sets this church's expectations, and as readers in the future, our expectations as well are set. That God is going to be the source of whatever Paul is going to pray for. It's, again, a wonderful model for us. 
We usually start our prayers sometimes mindlessly, directing this to God our Father. But that should immediately set our expectations that everything I'm about to ask is fully dependent on God's will being done. And then he goes on in this prayer, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Okay, that should register. We've kind of talked about that a little bit this evening. He goes back to this worthiness language. And what he's asking for is that God would make these believers worthy of the calling that God has placed on their lives. The calling itself, we need to recognize, is fully rooted in grace. Because who's calling? (laughs) We're not calling ourselves. It is God who has put this calling on us. And again, a reminder of what we already looked at with this language. He's not praying that they would be worth the calling. Or that they would need to do something in order to earn or merit this call. But rather... He's praying to God that God would work in their lives in order that the worth of the calling itself and even the worth of the caller, God himself, the worth of those things would be reflected in the lives of these believers. So it's it's reflecting and really deflecting worthiness in ourselves and reflecting worthiness to God and the calling that he's put on our lives. And then he moves on and asks God to do this thing, to make them worthy, so that they could showcase the worth of God and his calling. And he asks God to do this in a very particular way. He asks that God would take their inward resolves that these people are making that are good in four good things that are in line with scripture so he's saying please God take the inward resolves of these people and by your power make those inward resolves outward works that evidence their calling into the kingdom of God so whose resolve is it? it's the resolve of these people Whose work is it? It's the work of these people. But we have to remember that any, all of these things are works of faith. Because they're relying on God's power for these things to be manifested. Philippians, Paul writes again, It is God who works in you, both to work and to will of his good pleasure. So, as they, moving into the farther into the prayer, as they live in this dependence on the grace and power of God to live in a manner that reflects the worthiness of their calling and the caller, what is the result? Jesus is glorified and we are glorified in Him. This prayer all points back to the glory of Christ. So our fitness, our worthiness of the kingdom of God will be reflected in our works of faith and all of it will be a result of the grace and power of God at work in us. That's why he wraps up this prayer the same way he began the letter. 
the courting, all of this, would all of this, God, please have this happen according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the beginning of this chapter, your justification, your salvation, your standing as a true church is rooted in being in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Your growing into Christ-likeness is a result of the grace and the peace that is flowing out of your relationship in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now your final vindication and your glorification where you will finally perfectly reflect the glory of Jesus is again according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no room for boasting. And this reminds us too that the truth of the gospel is for all of life, beginning to end. So just a couple points, very short points of applications. I think in reading through Paul's description of this judgment that will provide relief for his people and wrath upon those who afflict his people and finally, ultimately reject him by rejecting the gospel. Paul is not reminding them of this so that they become consumed with seeing this final judgment right now as soon as possible. So he's asking them to not be consumed with looking for God's final judgment now. I think there's a couple reasons for this. One is because in our own flesh we'll be so consumed and our righteous indignation is not as righteous, will never be as righteous as God's. And so our desire for vindication is going to be tainted with our own flesh. And because God says vengeance is mine, not yours. So Paul is more interested through the work of the Holy Spirit writing this. He's more interested in their growth into Christ-likeness and how they endure suffering than necessarily their, their relief right away from this suffering. But I think there's another aspect to this as well. Oftentimes, I know I do, we miss the evidence of God's righteous judgment on sin that's already all around us. Now we're waiting for this final vindication. But in Romans chapter 1, keep going back to that, but it's one of Paul's letters as well. There are multiple instances, I think in chapter 1 verses 22, 24, and 26, where even as these unbelievers continue to live their life, God is pronouncing and showing his judgment on them in a certain way. And here it is. God, one way of his judgment on people is giving men and women up to their own lusts of their heart. He gives them up to their dishonorable passions. He gives them up to a debased mind. And he closes the chapter by saying, while all of these people know that those who practice these things deserve to die, they keep doing it, but not only continue to do it, but they give approval of it. You do not have to take a long gaze into our society or across the world. You just need to watch 30 minutes of a newscast to know that God is continually giving men and women up to their dishonorable passions, to the lust of their heart, and to debased mind. There are evidences of God's judgment all around us. 
And so don't be consumed looking for this final judgment and either cowering in fear or looking to be an agent of God's vindication. Rather, suffer well. Be persecuted well so that you can be counted worthy of God and His calling on your life. And one of the agents that he uses, the means he uses, is this prayer that Paul closes with. So instead, praise Paul's prayer for yourself and for others. Pray that God, through His grace and through His power, would allow us, individually and corporately as a church, to show the worth of God and His calling to us. Pray for yourself and your friends that any resolve for good that you make, that God would turn those resolves into works of faith by His power and grace alone. And also pray that as we see people being given up to their passions, we know that's a judgment of God and this is the fate that awaits them. The turning away finally and completely of God's face from them. Pray that we would be moved as we see that judgment around us. That our lives and our proclamation of the gospel, God by His grace would intervene and He would turn them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. That by His grace He would add members to His kingdom. That He would remove men and women from under His wrath to see the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are sometimes heavy subjects for us to consider the wrath and judgment of God. But it's a reality that we, we must discuss, we must teach, we must learn from, we must be changed because of seeing it. So Father, I ask that those of us in this room that are your children, who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, we treasure Him above all else. For those of us that are in the kingdom of God, would you allow us to walk worthy of that calling by through your power and through your grace taking every one of our resolves for good and turning it into works of faith. Allow us to suffer well by your grace. Help us to remember that we are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is unshakable, that is unmovable. You will hold us fast. We also pray for those that either in this room and those that we know that are right now under the righteous judgment of God because of their rejection of the gospel, their lack of knowledge of God and living in the light of that lack of knowledge, living according to their lusts and their passions, that you'd give us boldness to share the beauty and the truth of this gospel, that we would be real in understanding and sharing that because of their sin, they are under this judgment. They will one day no longer see any more glory of our great God if they live and continue that path. And so through our lives and through the proclamation of the gospel, would you use us to bring other, others into your kingdom? And we pray this all in the name of our Savior, our Redeemer, the just judge, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Right, thank you. You are dismissed.